0: listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. You can take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 7, Matthew 7. Ushers are coming forward with Bibles. And if you do not have a copy of God's Word in your hand this morning, I encourage you to raise your hand and to take one of those Bibles from them. And if you do not have a Bible at home, and uh, we would love for you to take that as a gift uh, from, uh, from the Lord to you today and that you would take and you would read God's Word. And so raise your hand if you need one of those Bibles and you can turn to Matthew 7. You can join us there as we look to God's Word here this morning. In 1993, Charlotte and I were just dating at the time, and I remember specifically this movie that we went to go and see together. It was Schindler's List. It was a horrifying and a very uh, earth-rattling, sobering movie depicting what took place in the Holocaust and how many Jews had been saved from the torture chambers, and yet it was also incredible to understand and to comprehend how many were suffered and and tortured um, because they were simply Jews. And I remember we went to it in a movie theater that sat over a thousand people and that movie theater was packed. And through the movie and towards the end of it, there were tears and there were sniffles. There wasn't the normal chewing of popcorn and slurping of pop out of the, the cup. Instead, it was replaced with Kleenexes and people blowing their noses. And, and as we walked out, I've never witnessed walking out of a movie theater so quietly and, and just no one making a sound and with red eyes and, and, and just took that moment in and just thought these people, including ourselves, were thinking heavily upon what we had just witnessed and and, and thankful for, for those who were able to stop that kind of torture and yet still incredibly saddened by the loss and what took place. I tell you that story because as Jesus is bringing his sermon to an end, the great Sermon on the Mount, and we start the conclusion as he's getting ready to land the plane, so to speak, this, this message series we've been working through for months and months now, this Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that we ever preached, Jesus did not leave with a, a heartwhelming, emotional, feel good kind of story at the very end of it. Nor does Jesus uh, leave, leave people kind of Hanging in the balance in, 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 in what they ought to decide. He is calling them to a decision. He closes this sermon with a series of illustrations that we're going to take a number of weeks to work through. These series of illustrations causes one not only to think, but also to examine, where am I at? Where am I at? Where is my heart at in light of what Jesus Christ is saying? The very last illustration that he gets to, we'll get to, Lord willing, two weeks from now, is that of a house that is being built, symbolizing the building of one's life, and how one of those houses in the last part that he talks about, the last house he talks, and ends the sermon with that house falling with a great crash. And that's how the sermon ends. The crowds would have dispersed that day deep in thought in great examination and an attitude of sobriety. Folks, this is the greatest sermon that was ever preached by the greatest man who ever lived on the face of this earth, by the greatest man, the Son of God, who is alive today sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. And that is why we've been taking time to work through this message series. We started in chapter 5, where the sermon starts, where Jesus describes the inner characteristic, the heart of someone who's been transformed by the gospel. Someone, and, and he talks about the attitudes of a disciple, what a kingdom follower, what their heart ought to reflect. And, and then he went on and gave the, the illustration or the metaphors using salt and light, illustrating how we ought to live our lives To those people around us that we are to be salt and light. And then he goes on into some specific instruction and teaching how the gospel, how a kingdom follower is going to live and think and act and react differently than those people in the world around us. So as people would see Jesus Christ in us. And so he gave specific teaching in the area of anger and lust and divorce and and, and people and, and being people of our word, that our yes would be yes and our no would be a no. He talked about loving our enemies. He talked about forgiveness and what that means. He talks about giving of our of our financial resources, about prayer, about fasting, materialism, laying up treasures in heaven, not building kingdoms here on earth. He talks about worry and about judging others all of these are impactful and powerful teachings from the greatest teacher that ever lived but in chapter 7 verse 13 where we're going to pick it up today there's a shift in the sermon and this is where he's landing the plane this is where the conclusion begins but he begins it with some sobering warnings and a call to examine our lives and really, in, 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 in actuality, we see this all throughout the word of God, that we are constantly being told to choose, to make a, a choice or a decision. I think of, of Moses in Deuteronomy, when, when he stood before the people, and he said, choose life. You and your children, that you may love the Lord your God. Choose to do it. You have to make a choice to do it. Or Joshua, when he stood before the people in in Joshua chapter 24, and he says, and if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day who who, who you will choose, or who you will worship and who you will follow. Whether it's the uh, gods of the Amorites, but then he says, but as for me and my house, we've made a choice. We're going to serve, we're going to follow the Lord. And we see all throughout the Word of God, it is always bringing us to a choice of a decision to examine our lives and then to either accept or reject the teaching from God's Word. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 13, and I think this verse will be up on the screen, the Apostle Paul, he makes this call to kingdom followers. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. He says you need to examine, is Christ truly in your life? This is a call that we see, a choice to examine our lives and respond in obedience to accept this call or to reject this call or to put it off till a later time. You see, when it comes to the word of God, to read it or to have it proclaimed, to have it spoken over us, to have someone share it with us, to simply be stirred without any movement, to admire the word and teaching without action, to be informed and not transformed, to be convicted without commitment is eternally, in fact, eternally not just dangerous, but deadly. And so the response is one of repentance and faith and obedience to the word of God. That is the call. That is the response towards life real life. And so starting in verse 13, Jesus closes this very well-known sermon with these well-known illustrations and the first one we're going to tackle today. But, but, but there's a number of these illustrations and, and, and they're as follows. And you can just even look ahead in your Bible and you can even see this where he talks about two roads. There's the wide road, there's the narrow road. There's, there's two kinds of faith. There's a false faith and there's a true faith. There are two kinds of trees. Ones that produce fruit or ones that good fruit and ones that produce bad fruit and that there's two houses one that is built on a rock and the other sand and Jesus calls us in each one of these to examine our lives and the one we're going to look at today is this first one in verses 13 and 14 and the question is what road are you on Jesus calls us to examine what road are we on there's only two roads and everyone here today is on one of those two roads there's no middle road there's no third road no no multiple roads God's word declares there are two words, two roads. Either you're in or you are out. There's not a half road somewhere in between. And God's word calls us to examine our lives. Look at what it says in verse 13. You can follow along. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. I found these pictures on the internet this week, and I kind of thought, hey, this is kind of a neat way that kind of some artists, they're not the clearest for you to see perhaps, but kind of some artist rendition of these two verses, and I thought they're they're quite interesting, and they're also a little on the sobering side as well, as we see the, the, the final destinations of these two roads. And I believe that... These authors or these these artists have depicted this quite well. Jesus is declaring that there are two roads. There's the road that has a gate that leads to life, and there is the road that starts with a gate that leads to death. And the first one we're going to look at here today is the wide road that leads to destruction. And again, throughout this message today, I encourage you to examine your life and say, what road am I on? Do I know for sure which road I am on today? Now, we might be tempted to think that those that are on this, this wide road that leads to destruction, I mean, that's for the irreligious people. These are people who you'd never find in church, like ever. Um, these are the atheists or the agnostics or the you know, the pagans or the heretics or the partiers or the murderers or, or the thieves or the sexual offenders and the abusers. Those are the people that are on that, that wide road that leads to destruction. But shockingly and very soberly, Jesus warns that not only... Will there be many on that road, as he tells us? But we also see a little later on that that many also includes devout religious people. People who have served faithfully. Down, If you look down to verse 22, and we'll get to that in the weeks ahead, but just to take a peek at that and, and just to, to show you what Jesus says. He says, and many, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These these are people who were in church. These were people casting out demons. They were preaching the word. They were doing many mighty things in the name of the Lord. And yet he says, depart from me. You're on the, the, the road to destruction. You're on the wide road. And Jesus says, there will be many. You see, something about the wide road is that it is the easy and it's the popular road. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and you will live your best life. There will be wealth and health and pursue your dreams and your desires. And with Jesus, he's just gonna help you just be able to float right through all of that just in the glory clouds. The kind of thought and teachings that will fill church buildings. But it will also fill and populate that wide road that leads to destruction. And we have, as a church have been going through this over the last number of weeks. In the mini-series of the American Gospel through uh, Christ Alone. I encourage you, download that. We're going to try to order some DVDs. But download that and watch it. It is well worth it. It is very eye-opening. And, and, and shows that, that so easily we can, can, can get distracted by the things of this world and a prosperity gospel. You see, on this wide road, the requirements and the demands are few. It's about you building your own custom life and having Jesus come alongside and bail you out when you get into trouble or have Jesus on your terms. The only thing you need to do to be on this wide road, is to make that one-time decision, quite possibly. And you don't really, you know, to, to, you pray the prayer, but you really don't have to worry about following the commands of Jesus. Don't worry about holiness or, 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 or living out the Great Commission or, or living for God's glory, because after all, it's about you being happy and you pursuing your own mission and your own dreams, You'll get a pass to heaven. Your sins, they'll be tolerated along the way. Folks, what I'm talking about here, what I'm just describing is easy believism or hyper grace or antinoniumism. its It's a prosperity gospel it's, it, and it's running rampant in churches in North America, even in, the, even in the Okanagan Valley. You'd be amazed at how many churches believe and, and talk about this. It's where you have a salvation, a prayer, a commitment, but it's disconnected from the commands of God. Your personal happiness over personal holiness and Christ-likeness. Your glory, your agenda over the Lord's. Your comfort over that of the commands of Christ. And Jesus is saying that some who are on this road are thinking that they're on the narrow road leading to heaven, and yet they're headed to destruction. That's the wide road that leads to destruction. But the second road that we see here is the narrow road that leads to life. Verse 14, it says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus says that there will be few on this road. If you are a Bible underliner, I'd encourage you to underline the word few. That's a sobering word. That many that find, or, and those that find it are few. Here we see something about the gospel. We see something about how one gets on this road, and we see the exclusivity of the gospel, that it is through Christ and Christ alone. And today, so often, it is so unpopular, though, to be so exclusive, to be so narrow-minded, I mean, we accept it in other areas of life, but we, as Christians, and, and as the church, and as evangelicals, and fundamentalists, even we can even be termed at as times uh, can be referred to as times. We don't. We can be called narrow, or or, or just so close-minded, as so tunnel vision in our thinking, so intolerant of other people and other views and other ways. And today we we are told to be tolerant and accepting, all-inclusive. Don't be judgmental, judgmental. Whatever you believe is fine for you. If that's what you believe in your heart and you feel really sincere about it, that's okay. Just be sincere. Well, you could be sincerely wrong with eternal consequences. It's not just okay to have people in your life that you talk with and And to kind of at the end of the conversation walk away and say, Well, if that works for you, whatever you want to believe, that's okay. God is a God of love. Yes, we should celebrate diversity in many areas of life. And we do celebrate diversity, even in this room. We're so different. In so many different ways, so many thoughts and opinions and ideas and likes and dislikes, whether that be on social issues, social, uh, political issues, music likes, uh, clothing styles, whatever it might be. I mean, and, and in this room, you're going to find a whole smattering of ideas, especially when it comes to things like vaccinate or not to vaccinate, GMO, non-GMO, pipelines or no pipelines, meat or that other stuff, you know, I mean, just whatever it might be. I was actually talking to uh, a good friend, well, I'll name him Dwayne, and he said, you know, uh, they were away for a number of months, and he said, as as I met with him, uh, when he came back, and he says, you know, I've decided I'm going to be partial vegan. I said, really? That's interesting. He says, well, well, to, to be that, it means you're not eating meat. And he says, so partially, like when I'm sleeping at night, I'm not eating, and so I'm not going to be eating meat at that time, so I'm a partial vegan. And, it, it, and it's just kind of funny how, you know, we can try to, you know, and it's just like, okay, Dwayne, if that works for you, you know, uh, that, that's good for you. And it's okay, you know, to have various, various opinions and ideas. Ford or Chevy, some very strong opinions in that area. Calgary Flames, oh, no one likes them. Uh, um... <laughs> Sorry, I know there's a few that do. Um, there's diversity when it comes to certain areas of Bible interpretation and how we see it. And that's okay. There's some open-handed issues on, and opinions and ideas and convictions and, you know, different ideas and, 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 and beliefs when it comes to end times or spiritual gifts or roles within the life of the church. There's going to be differences in that. And, and, and we live in a world that appeals to multiple paths and well-informed options. But when it comes to Christ alone, we can't help but maybe sometimes think, but isn't there another way? Couldn't there be another way? I mean, we tolerate and accept narrowness in some areas, though. For instance, when you go to the pharmacist, you really hope that the pharmacist is very narrow in giving your medications, that is, they're counting out your pills, that it's, not oh, throw in a little bit of this and a little bit of this, and this blue pill and this blue pill, ah, oh, shouldn't make a difference, you know, and, and you just kind of continue on in that way, or this, you know, yellow one will put, you know, will make a rainbow of, uh, you don't want, you want your pharmacist to be very exact, right? Pilots or air traffic controllers, you want them to be very narrow, When it comes to what runways they should be landing or or taking off from in airplanes, you want them to be very specific and very narrow-minded. Surgeons, when it comes to operations, I remember when I had my knee surgery a a number of years ago, they made me circle a big circle over the area, kind of a big circle around the area, and, and put an X in the area of where the surgery was to take place that it was on my right knee and not my left knee and then they made me sign it with a um, With a sharpie and so I had to do this because I wanted them to make sure they they operated on the right knee They wanted to make sure that operate on the right knee you, you wouldn't like it very much if they operate on the wrong wrong knee Sometimes that's maybe happened and that's why they get you to write there But you know or you go in to get your appendix out and the doctor says oh, you know what? Well, we decided to take out your kidney, too no, we want doctors, we want our surgeons, we want our dentists to pull the right tooth and not just, oh, any old tooth, you know? And, and, and so we want narrowness in certain areas, and we need that and ask for it and require it. Well, in the same way, it is true for our salvation. There is only one way to be saved. The gospel is exclusive. The, the narrow road that leads to life is through Christ and through Christ alone. It's the exclusivity of the gospel. And I'm not the one that declares that. That's not my idea. That's from Jesus Himself. In John chapter 10, I encourage you to write down these verses because these are powerful verses that we have in the New Testament. In John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. John eleven twenty five 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. It's pretty, pretty powerful, pretty exclusive. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And the disciples continue to believe this and speak it and proclaim it. Peter, in Acts 4, speaking to a group of religious leaders who thought their good works would get them to eternal life, would get them to heaven, and, and he stands up and he preaches. And he says, there's salvation for no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's salvation in no one else other than Jesus. And of course, he was talking about Jesus. Yet many people say, this is so narrow-minded. All paths lead to God. After all, we have a God of love. He would never send people away to hell, would he? And it can tear at our emotions, even our guilt, in thinking the people that we're passing by later on today in restaurants and parks, this week, wherever you go out in coffee shops, to realize that there are so many people that unless they come to Jesus, they will spend their eternity in hell. I listened to a pastor in our city preach a sermon where he poked fun at Bible literalists, as he called them. And he used these examples, and he said, when Jesus said he was the bread of life, he didn't mean that he was all of a sudden a loaf of bread. Or when Jesus said he was the door, it didn't mean Jesus was a door. And so when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, he didn't really mean that. He means that Jesus is a way, and there's a way for the Orthodox Jew. There's a way for the Muslim. There's a way for the Buddhists. And and his sermon sermon was actually titled, Room at the Table for All. Room at the table on the, the, the wide road that leads to destruction. The narrow road is through Christ and Christ alone. Our salvation, the gospel, it is exclusive, it is narrow, it is Christ alone, and it is so life giving, sin forgiving, guilt cleansing, hope giving, confidence, assurance that the Holy Spirit gives to His followers that they are His children. Our salvation is through Christ alone. And he is the only religious leader that has authority to make such a claim, doesn't he? No other religious leader in the history of this world can make the claims that he made could live the life that he lived. After 33 years of living, he stands before some religious leaders and he even says to them, he says, can any of you convict me of any sin? And they were silent because they found no sin in him. There was no history. Hey, back, you know, I, I heard G- Jesus cheated on his taxes or I heard that Jesus actually got angry and, 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 and said, you know, said some swear words, took his dad's name in vain. You know, like n- there was nothing like that. No one could convict, perfect in righteousness. He he raised the dead, he healed the poor, or, or he healed the sick, he fed the multitudes, performed miracles, and then he died on the cross, and three days later, he rose in victory. What religious leader has any of that on their resume? None. And I believe, based on what Jesus has done and the claims that he made, And what God's word proclaims and what the people around him proclaim. Jesus stands alone in having the authority to be able to speak on this issue. And so when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the father except through me. He has that kind of authority. Let others speak of their miracles. As we found out through this documentary, most of them are all fake. That take place that that they may proclaim. But who has raised the dead? Who personally, what other religious leader has been raised from the dead and lives forevermore? There's none like Jesus. Jesus has the authority, and so we must enter by the narrow gate onto that narrow road by coming to Jesus. And how do you do that? You can do that today if you've never done that. And you do that by admitting that you are a sinner, understanding that our sins have caused a separation between us and God, understanding God's holiness and our sinfulness and this great chasm between And no matter what we do, we can never have that remedied by ourselves. But Jesus Christ coming to this earth, he took uh, that penalty. He took that sin upon himself and dying a substitutionary death on that cross to bridge the gap between between us and our God. And by believing that God loved us so much that he sent his son to this world and that this Jesus, he lived this perfect life. Died on the cross as that perfect substitute. He died bearing our sin, but also taking upon him the wrath from God that we so much deserve because of our sins. Taking that punishment, buried, rose again, conquering sin, conquering death. I vote Jesus. And we receive him by faith. But it's not just enough to know this. We must put our faith and our trust in him. Receive him as our savior. And there's nothing we can do to earn it except to receive this gift and when we do we enter the narrow gate which takes us onto the narrow road the holy spirit comes into our life and seeks to transform us from the inside out and the holy spirit assures us of our salvation works in us speaks in us we can quench the holy spirit by our sin but the holy spirit takes up residence in our life this gate This road, it is exclusive. The way is narrow, but it excludes no one. Jesus said, and we have in God's word where it says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's available to all, but each person must receive it personally, individually, not because your family was religious, because your dad was a pastor or an elder or served faithfully in the church or because you have this history or this lineage or because you've done all these great things or have given great amounts of money or have served in this way. Nothing except to receive this gift. The gospel is exclusive. It is through Christ alone. But we also see the reality of the gospel, and it's going to cost. It means surrender. A surrender of our lives. When it comes to salvation, we oftentimes have the wrong starting point. The place that so often you will hear this spoken of and you will hear people share it with others, whether it's in a hospital bed before surgery or before some difficult time in their life. And, 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 and we kind of bait people with the wrong sort of thing. We have the wrong starting point And that wrong starting point is, hey, do you want to live forever? Well, then receive Jesus. Just pray this prayer and you're in. Oh, You don't want to go to hell? Just believe in him. You want to have a better life? Come to Jesus. That's the wrong starting point. And so people are told, pray the sinner's prayer. Invite Jesus into your life. Check the box. Walk the aisle. Raise your hand. You get your free pass to heaven and the hope of a better life. Just wait. It'll come. Just try harder. Just work harder. Just wait. It'll come. You don't have to take his word that seriously. I mean, one day it'd be nice to take it more seriously, but I've got some sin to sow. In my life, I'll get more serious when I'm older. You know, when I hit 40 or 50 or 60 or whatever age you kind of think is older. Some of you think 25 is older. Um, That's young. I mean, we we will all continue to struggle daily. We're going to battle sin for the rest of our lives. But you see, the right starting point in understanding our salvation, the exclusivity of the gospel, this narrow road that leads to life, this Christ alone. The right starting point is understanding the weight of our sin. The cost of our sin. Understanding how our sin is a front to God. Understanding how our sin separates us from God. And understanding the weight of our sin, but then also understanding the beauty of our redemption that is available and found only in Jesus. That he would sacrifice himself in the way that he did for us. To blow us away. We're undone by his mercy and grace. As we were singing a few moments ago, love's so amazing, so divine. What's that next line in the song? Demands my soul, my life, my all. How many of us sang that? How many of us sang it and meant it? You see, it's recognizing his rule, his lordship, his control over our lives. It involves turning when we repent, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's not simply about choosing to follow Jesus and receive his forgiveness. It's also a turning, it's repentance. It's doing a 180 and, and saying, I do not want to live in these areas of sin anymore. I turn my back on them. A break from the crowd. It's not continuing to keep on sinning. As Paul goes on to say later on, that grace may abound. That's a cheap grace. It's not real grace. True salvation, the narrow road, means we come to Jesus accepting his rule over our lives. And that happens initially at salvation when we repent, when we turn our lives over to Jesus Christ, when we turn from our sin, our agenda, and we surrender ourselves to him. And this isn't just an initial thing. This is a daily thing of surrendering ourselves to him. Now, you might be sitting here, and I know some of you are, because I was thinking this this week, and I thought, well, we should probably answer this. Some of you might say, Mildon, aren't you complicating it? Aren't you complicating salvation? You just seem like this is just... I thought that coming to Jesus would be just as simple as a child coming to, it's, in fact, a child can understand this. And a child can come to faith, yes. You know, that childlike faith, yes. When our kids were young, we would go swimming with them. And, and, uh, and oftentimes, and I remember them at specific ages, Me being in the water, them standing on the edge. And I remember Nate, he had like these water wings. He was very scared of the water. And he had these water wings. I tried to find it. And this blow up kind of like muscle suit. It looked like he, you know, and I got pictures of him going like this because it just made him. But it was a flotation device. And then he, that wasn't good enough for him. He also wanted water wings to, to also have on so that when he would be in the water, he would be safe. And I remember one day getting him to jump into my arms, to jump into the deep end. I was in the deep end, and he's standing on the edge. And I'm like, trust me, trust me. And you know what? With some coaxing and encouragement and probably some candy at the end of the the ordeal, he jumped with a childlike faith, resting in his, knowing his father would not only catch him, but his father would... Protect him and hold him. That's a childlike faith. I surrender it all. I jump into my father's arms. Everything I am is yours. That's a childlike faith. And that is how we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Total surrender. Bringing all areas of our lives under his control. I's reading a piece by G- J.D. Greer, and I've heard this before, but J.D. Greer, in, in what I read this week, either he is Lord of all, he, or he is not Lord at all. That includes our future, it includes our plans, our money, our giftings, our time. Is he Lord of all of these areas in our life? Our entertainment? Laying down the control at Jesus' feet, giving up our self-will, abandoning our ambitions. We don't see our money, our jobs, our ministries, our gifts, our abilities as ours, but all as a gift from God to be used for his glory. You see, Jesus was very upfront about this sort of teaching. He said, it's going to be hard. He didn't sugarcoat it. Preachers do that today. Sugarcoat the gospel, but he didn't do that. You see, we like and we gravitate to and underline the verses in our Bible that talk about a full and an abundant life. I mean, how many of you, if you were to take a look in your Bible, if you've had it for even just a couple years, you will have Jeremiah 29 underlined. For I know all the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope. Oh, we love that. Underline. Or, Or Matthew 11, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Yeah. That's a great problem. We need that. That's so true. That's so wonderful. But what about verses like Luke 9? In verse 23, when Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Because he's on the wide road. That leads to destruction. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. If we've been living, if, if our lives are just about my business, my agenda, we're ashamed to live for him, to speak of him, it says he will be ashamed of us. Luke nine sixty two, Jesus said, a little later on in that chapter, he says, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. That means we're done with our old ways and we desire to live unto God. Matthew 10, some more sobering words in Matthew 10, 36, and it says, a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. How many of us have these verses underlined in our Bibles? Jesus was very upfront about this. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me, he says. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And what did Paul tell Timothy? In 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. You see... The word narrow, if you take a look in verse 13 and 14, the word narrow, take a look in your Bibles now, and you can even underline, encourage you to do it. There's two different meanings for that word in the original language, in the Greek. The first word narrow in verse 13 refers to, literally means to groan, as if you are under pressure. You are being pressed from all sides. To groan, and and that's an initial groan. And some have taken that to say that that's when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. There's a groaning; it's going to squeeze us because we're turning our back on our sin and we're turning our lives to Christ. It's it's humbling. What? How does Jesus start out in the Beatitudes? It talks about being spiritually bankrupt before God. Blessed are the meek, those who are are, are spiritually poor. That that we realize we bring nothing to God, and and so we we groan and we as we squeeze through that gate pressed on every side and then verse 14 it it, it's used as an ongoing way it's it's used to speak and we see it used in 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 the bible uh in the rest of the new testament speaking of trials and tribulations and even oftentimes persecution jesus is saying that the reality of the gospel involves not only surrender and it will be costly but it will be hard to follow it will be lonely at times The crowd is going one way and you know what God's word is and what God's call upon your life to live, to act, to speak, to do differently. than what the crowd is doing, it will be difficult at times. And you say, Melvin, aren't you being just a little extreme here? I'm I'm just a messenger. This is what God's word has to say. These are also verses that we ought to have underlined in, in the word. In North America, folks, we have been blessed in so many ways for so many years. What we have experienced as nations here in Canada and the United States is not normal when it comes to, to, to church history, to secular history. Over the last few centuries here in North America, we, in many ways, we've lived in a very strong Christian culture. We've had just enough Christians in politics and in the educational systems in our culture, in areas of business to have a strong influence where it's been comfortable, if not almost culturally accepted or the norm, to be a Christian. We've been able to speak freely about our faith. But according to history and the Word of God, we are living in a very special bubble. And that bubble is getting ready to burst. And we must be prepared because the storm clouds, I believe, are very much on the horizon. For many Christians, for many followers of Christ around this world, they are under attack because of Jesus Christ. Because of the exclusivity of the gospel. Because they will not recant their faith in Jesus. I was reading an article from the BBC this week. The persecution in the Middle East and North Africa, areas like China, it's becoming, they are referring to it as near genocide levels. In the Middle East and in North Africa, it's amazing in Iraq, 2003 there were, I believe they they figured there were about 2 million Christians. Now they believe it's it's under 100 or 125,000 because of the persecution. They've either fled or many have died. We have been so blessed. One in three Christians in those regions, they say, are suffering. Christianity, Christians have become the most persecuted group across our globe. And again, we're in this nice little bubble here. But it's getting ready to burst. We hear oftentimes very little about this sort of happening in our news today. But Christians today are being imprisoned, tortured, and put to death for their faith in Jesus Christ. And as I say, the storm clouds are on the horizon. There are movements that are very active in North America, in our own country, that does not just want freedom for their immoral views, their unbiblical views. Not only do they want freedom, they want total acceptance. They want us to be able to sign off on it. To us, for us to be able to, for all people, whether you're a school teacher, whether you're a lawyer, a doctor, a pastor, a banker, sign off on these areas. Accept these lifestyles as normal. And their ability to force them on everyone is growing in alarming rates. This is just, I don't want to alarm, I need to alarm you, not scare you, alarm you though. Are we ready, are we willing, will we take a stand for Jesus when the time comes? Well, we don't know that. But are we willing, are we ready to take a stand for Jesus today? That's how we can know. Do we speak about him? Do we live for his glory? Do we rearrange our schedules to be able to serve him with with joy, not out of reluctance? Our finances reflect that we're living for another kingdom, or are we living for this kingdom? We're under attack. A Baptist minister wrote in USA Today. And I use the word minister super, super lightly here, but he says American churches must reject literalism and admit we got it wrong when it comes to views on homosexuality and marriage. It's a pressure that's coming. Will we stand or will we cave under the pressure? Will we stand for Jesus? Leonard Ravenhill, a great author, he wrote this, The church today is married to prosperity, personality, and popularity. The early church and the church through history has been married to poverty, prisons, and persecutions. Life on the the narrow road is costly, but it will be worth it. I cannot help but to think of the words that the Apostle Paul used in 1 Corinthians 18. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. There's power in what we're talking about. When Christ is our life, When we have committed our lives to him as savior and Lord, he is Lord in every area of our life. And this is a daily thing we need to keep living on. I've been so convicted of this. Haven't enjoyed working on this sermon one little bit this week. But I also have enjoyed it because it is the truth of God's word and it speaks to me and I trust it will speak to you. It's in the cross, it's in the gospel, it's in the narrow way. That's where the power is. That's where the joy is. That's where true life and true fulfillment, that's where peace and God's power is available and found. At the end of the American gospel documentary that we watched, many of us watched, I love three statements that they said when they said, how are we to live in light of all of this? They said, suffer well, serve the Lord faithfully, sacrifice for the gospel.